Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with my co-host, the curious Canadian, Coach Trevor Connor. Many of us spend months training hard and planning perfectly for our big event. Everything goes well, and we reach the big week with the best legs we've ever had. And then, in those final few days, it all comes apart. This is a common story. Everyone on this week's episode had no problem sharing stories of an event they cared about being ruined in the days leading up to it. Event preparation is an important step in maximizing our potential, and in many ways, it's a skill that we need to develop and train. Our guest this week, head of sports science at Wahoo, is an elite coach who's worked with world champions and everyday athletes. He knows all too well what's involved in getting an athlete ready for race day, particularly when they have to deal with travel and the stress of what could be the most important event of their careers. Neil shares with us his wisdoms on planning those final days, how to establish a routine, what sort of training to do, nutrition, warm-ups, and how to deal with travel. Along with Neil, we have a host of top experts share their thoughts on event preparation, including World Tour Pro with Trek Segafredo, Tom Scoinch, physiologist and head of performance for UAE Team Emirates, Dr. Inigo San Milan, author of The Athlete's Gut, Dr. Patrick Wilson, CTS Premier Coach Renee Eastman, and top cyclocross rider and coach Rebecca Gross. So, fill up your water bottle, put your legs up, and let's make you fast. Listeners, we have an exciting announcement. We've lowered the price of membership by 75%. Now you can enjoy all the training science at Fast Talk Laboratories for just $60 a year. Join today at fasttalklabs.com slash join. Neil Henderson, welcome to the show. And uh, as the listeners know, I, I tend to gush about people because I have a lot of man crushes. And Neil might be the ultimate man crush. And I say that in great deference because Neil Henderson is the first person to give me my chance out of grad school. Neil was really my first sort of mentor. He hired me at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. He taught me 105% of what I know. So we're, we're lucky. you know. But I also think that Neil and Trevor and I were really aligned on having Neil here because the topic we're covering today, four days preparation before your event, is the perfect topic to cover with a coach who also has a sports science background. So we're really looking forward to the talk today. Thank you, guys. And uh, Rob, I actually just realized something. You were the first person that I actually interviewed via electronic means. We were actually on a uh, oh, well, Skype call. We were on Skype. Yeah, this is way before any of this stuff was necessary. Before in that it was way. normal. I mean, this was in the uh, what early two thousands, mid. You know, yep. Two thousand nineteen, two thousand aughts, we'll <laughs> yep. call them. I think. Yeah. And so, way before, you know, ten plus years before, it was the uh, standard way. So, it's pretty cool to be here with you and with Trevor and to be able to talk about some of this stuff. And full disclosure, I might have been across the country in Lake Placid, New York. Yep, and I was in Boulder. Yeah, but I I really only had a button-up shirt on the top and I was definitely <laughs> wearing like shorts or or something on the bottom that. And flip-flops. Exactly, exactly. Well, but well, I'm glad that we're here together today. Well, Neil, you didn't give me my first shot out of grad school, so welcome, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> 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 <laughs> I'm here for you too, Trevor. Oh, you are. Actually, you know what? 
I was riding with Rio and, and manager of Rio out of grad school and you were our coach. So I got to take that back. You were great. So yep. appreciate it and always love having you on the show. So Rob, where do we want to start here? You know, I think that the idea is this. We talk so much about training. We talk so much about all of the things that you can do to improve your performance. But what happens when the hard work is over? What happens in those final days before the event where you're just trying to not screw up all of the hard work that you did? How the heck can you apply a strategy that makes you better or optimizes your performance in the few days leading up to a race? And let's just emphasize that because I've seen a whole lot of athletes that spend months doing the perfect preparation and then they're four days out from the event, they get nervous, they get into that exam, I got a cram mode and undo all that training in four days. And Neil, looking at the way you're nodding your head, you've seen that a lot yourself. You've seen it before. It's amazing. There's actually a a phenomenal runner from the U.S. who kind of ended his career during a taper. So big picture, we always think about, you know, you have to back off your training to be able to be ready to perform at your best. So you can't keep training at your highest level all the way up to race day. So there's always going to be some reduction. There's a few different ways, you know, there's lots of research out there on tapering strategies. I would say I tend to follow something more along the lines of about a 30% reduction two weeks out and about a 50% reduction kind of the week leading into an event. But it does definitely vary depending on the kind of event somebody's doing. But there is this reduction in training that you're doing. And so that leaves athletes feeling typically pretty good. And if you don't have a plan for what to do in those last few days, you might go off the rails. And this runner took on a massive landscaping project at home, had all kinds of time the week before the race, went out and uh, basically dug up trees, moved rocks, and sustained an injury that pretty much ended their career. And this was, you know, an Olympic level runner who just made a series of poor choices and didn't manage that taper period very well. So I think uh, we can hopefully help some of you who, you know, I don't know if you're going to the Olympics or not, but, you know, help you not undo all the great work that you've done in your season or potentially even over your career and be able to have your best performance. But hey, at least his yard looked great. As he was sitting there recuperating. (laughs) Lots of recovery time to enjoy that beautiful backyard. Oh, brutal. Oh, that's just painful to hear. I actually killed a target race just a couple of years ago. Chris and I were really uh, focusing on the Sunshine Hill climb just for fun. The day before I went to... Wait, wait, wait. Just for fun, the Sunshine Hill climb? Yes. Just for... I I just go out and I do that for fun. Yes. Okay, well, that's you. I don't get paid. Anything I do on the bike now is just for fun. So, <laughs> my, my only experience with this, not that I want to derail it, is that where Neil and I used to work, Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, was literally the starting line of the Sunshine Canyon Hill Climb. And I watched people line up for it. Yep. Never crossed my mind that I should race that. Yeah. But <laughs> like Neil, I think we're more sprinters. As you know, Trevor does that climbing. Well, thing. the worst part of that is actually registration was at... BCSM. Yep. And the segment on Strava was a little further down the road. So even though I did my fastest time ever up Sunshine, the 40 minutes I spent registering, standing (laughs) around, waiting for the race to start, all counted towards my Strava Uh, segment. So it's actually my slowest time on Strava. Man, that's a harsh reality coming at you there. (laughs) (laughs) But... Here's my way of ruining that race. We were focusing on it. We were actually, I was going to work for Chris to try to get him the win. 
And the day before, I went to a town north of Boulder called Fort Collins for a race up there. And a guy that, let's say, I've had a rivalry with for a long time broke away with another rider. And everybody's like, they're up the road. There's no way we can catch them. I'm like, not going to happen. I got on the front and did an hour and a half pull to bring that breakaway back. (laughs) So the next day, I get to the race and Chris is like, how are you feeling? I'm like, I'm not going to be able to help you at all. I've never actually ruined my own race before a taper, but I have ruined somebody else's. I guess that we've had on the show, uh, Dr. Jason Glowney, who I think that we're all familiar with. Uh, he and I used to ride a lot together. And one day I was feeling pretty good, pretty spicy. We were riding north of town on the flats and uh, he was sort of sitting on my wheel, which usually, let's be honest, I sat on his wheel. Typically, yeah, he's very strong. But uh, I was feeling good, and so I, uh, I dropped down into a, a semi-aero position. I had my forearms on my, uh, on my bars, and Glowney said, as soon as I saw you do that, I knew that tomorrow wasn't going to be much fun for me, and I proceeded to hammer as hard as I could. And he <laughs> just tried to sit on my wheel, and we finished, and he was like, bro, man, I got a race tomorrow. And uh, so unfortunately, I apologize, uh, Dr. Glowney, if you're out there listening. It's all my fault. Yep. And <laughs> even though we might just talk about the last like four or so days here before your event, I know I destroyed one of my uh, Xterra World Championship races myself seven days out. I was at Ironman Hawaii cheering on athletes that I was coaching and working with. And man, the motivation you get from seeing the best in the world out there competing in a world championship is absolutely like hard to contain. And I was young. I was in my 20s. I was excited. I had uh, placed second in my age group at Xterra World Championships the year before, which back then you had Ironman Hawaii. And then just a week later was the Xterra World Championships over in Maui. And so I was there in Kona, watched everyone Saturday and Sunday. I had my last kind of efforts to do. And I went so overboard because I was just so jacked up on watching everyone all Saturday. Also, I had been out there, you know, in the sun for 10 hours on Saturday. I came into it probably less than rested. And I proceeded to just absolutely put on the work out of my life on Sunday. And the following Sunday on race day at Xterra Worlds, I was flat, as flat as could be. I went from second the year before, even with a flat tire on the bike that I fixed and rolling my ankle, I still finished second in my age group that year where I went to Kona and watched everything and blew my race a week before I finished fourth. Hard no, lesson to learn. No Hard, way, no. The wrong way. I, I think yep. the, the takeaway out of all of this, right, is we've all been there. Every one of us have messed this up. I'm sure a lot of the listeners have. So how do we how do we get around this? You know, how do we prevent those last few days from undoing everything. And you talked to us right before we went on the air. I think you called it your, your sequence. Yeah, sequencing. So tell us a little bit about this. So you create a whole plan for those final days for your athletes. Yep. So the planning is really about helping an athlete be prepared both physically and mentally. And so the sequencing is a series of training sessions, but also other elements that we put into that schedule to take up some of that time that would normally be spent training. So great example of this actually with Rowan Dennis for his hour record, we went to a matinee movie one day. It was half an hour away from where we were staying. The movie itself was over two hours long, half an hour drive back. So that took three plus hours of time in the middle of the day on, on what was scheduled to be a rest day so that he wasn't just thinking about that. Because yep. the, the one thing that often happens when you don't have a plan to do something else with your time is you fill it 
sometimes with just spinning your wheels and your head and thinking too much and getting in your head if you don't have really good foundation of mental training that you've been doing and then you start to go into that place, oh my gosh, you can be in trouble. And and some of that might be an, an elevation, an escalation of your energy inappropriately in the days leading up to it, which means then you're kind of empty on race day. I've seen that coaching collegiate athletes a lot of times. We would when I was coaching the the CU triathlon team, we would go out to California for the national championships, which were there every year at the Wildflower Triathlon. We'd have athletes, you know, we'd be leaving on Thursday and they were already at, you know, 10 out of 10 level and they dialed it up over the next two days on the drive out there, they get there. And then by the day before the race, they're coming off a high because they've just been so jacked and they they didn't manage that energy. And on race day, they were just flat because they literally had just been running that psychological side at maximum for days and then had nothing left when it really mattered. So sequencing is about having certain things that you're doing in training, but also making sure that you're addressing all the rest of the non-training time and making sure that there's attention being paid to that and discussed, not just letting it up to chance. So is this something that you write out? Is this a plan that you create for each yeah, athlete? Yeah, so in a training schedule, there's certain components that we're going to practice this in advance of that, you know, let's call it an A race, you know, very high important race, whether that's a national championship or a qualifying event. We're going to go through this process typically a couple times in the lead up to that, starting many months out. And one of the best ways to do that is when you're doing some of your your testing type efforts just to see where your fitness is at, if it's kind of a... a you know, power testing day that you're going to be doing, I will actually use the same sequencing in the last three, four or five days that they're going to use in their competition and taking into account like when the travel days might be. So in some cases, you know, you can just train, you know, you, you travel three days, you know, three days before it, you do opener and then race. Uh, that's a kind of typical standard if you're only traveling a couple hours. If you have a longer travel, it might be happening five days out is that travel day. And so we might take that day completely off and then think about, okay, riding easy and then doing some openers and event, having basically a schedule for that relative to actually what that travel schedule looks like. If you're doing big international travel, ideally you want to have that scheduled earlier, but very often it's just a matter of what's available, flights or what, you know, what the timing of things is, what other events you've got going on or work responsibilities that you can't leave until this point or family. And so you may not be working in the ideal situation, but if you run through that consistent type of schedule in those days, you have a familiarity with it. And so there's not an absolute rigidity, but there's some consistency. Let's hear from World Tour Pro Tom Scoinch, who talked with us about the sequence he uses as he builds up to key events. As pros, we do race a lot. It is really different for race to race. But if we are talking key races, then uh, as, as with anything, you always try and look back from the race day count kind of backwards. And usually in the perfect scenario, the day before would be a two-hour ride with some harder efforts, maybe some sprints thrown in there as well for good measure, just to wake up the body because the day before would have been a rest day or a very, very easy day. Uh, so it's at least two days of pretty easy training. And uh, depending on how big the training sessions have been in, let's say, 10 days out, uh, day three and four can be either, maybe day four would be still fairly intense, but short. 
let's say some three hours or four hours, which is short for us, I guess, with some time behind the scooter. I am always one that enjoys, or not really enjoys, but benefits from the time behind a moto, from the time at speed, at race speed, because in training alone, it's hard to do it. And then, uh, yeah, maybe that uh, three days out would be just a leisurely easy ride, but that would be longer than two hours, let's say three hours of just riding and enjoying hopefully some sunshine instead of some Belgian rain. Is there anything you change about your sleep, your recovery, your nutrition? Um, not really. I mean, uh, for sure, if, especially if it's a big day coming, you definitely start uh, making sure that you are fueling well enough two days out. You got to replenish the tank, uh, especially for a race like Roubaix or something where you're on the pedal the whole day and it's, uh, yeah, sometimes seven hours on the bike. Three days out, you can, maybe on that long ride, you can really not go crazy on ingesting a lot of carbs, sort of let that tank run lower. But that intense day, four or five days out that I would do behind the moto, I would make sure that I do pretty much the same fueling of, let's say, grams of carbs per hour that I would do in uh, the race, uh, just so that the body remembers how to utilize the carbs that are given to it. Yeah, hit that 90 grams of carbs or whatever uh, per hour. Maybe even eat some gels, maybe even take some caffeine gels, because that is, yeah, always, always comes in handy to... Make sure that hard sessions are hard and you feel good in them, not uh, not come back just wrecked. It seems obvious to me, you know, and I always bring up the one person that I coach, which is my wife. We build her training around that travel schedule. We get her used to sort of not necessarily being able to run much X days before. That's all built into training in the weeks prior. Yep. But this is a whole Months other level. I am I am so beyond <laughs> I'm so beyond impressed. Thank you. Well, yeah. it's also really smart. I mean, I actually think, so one of my last big target races that I always look back and I go, ah, was uh, 2011 Canadian Nationals. I was on some of the best form in, in my life in the previous year. I just missed a podium. So was feeling really good about this race. And it was near my parents' house. So I stayed at my parents' place and planned nothing for the two days before the race to get ready. And sitting around my parents' house doing nothing I just got stressed because all I could do was think about the race. And I'm listening and going, that was so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Just go to a movie. Yep. You just pressurize yourself unnecessarily. You didn't have a relief valve planned. Right. And so that's one of those things. And and in working with athletes, I always talk about in those final days, we're going to have a plan, but we have to be able to adapt. So having a plan is important. Being able to adapt is critical to success because things are going to happen, whether it's at a, you know, based on the weather, you know, logistics and things like that with the Olympic games, even though, you know, there's a lot of things in preparation that happens all of a sudden there's like, you can't do this now, or that can happen at this time. And you need to be able to be, okay, we're going to do this then. And, and not, I want it this way. Like, it's just not available. Like we have to adapt and go forward. And that's really important part of like learning how to be flexible because, you know, the ideal preparation may look like something. The reality is something else. I remember with Flora Duffy several years ago when she was really kind of starting her rise in the ITU racing world and, and she got food poisoning. She flew, you know, flew over to Sweden. She had won a race before that or had been on the podium and she flew over and got sick. And it's like, okay, what do you do now? It's like, 
we're just going to rest for several days because you're depleted. Like any training yeah. you're going to do is only going to slow you down for those first two days. And she did a little bit of exercise basically the day before, nothing in the normal, but she ended up winning the next day because she just adapted, adjusted, and didn't stress about the things that weren't done, the things that weren't perfect, and just executed her race and it worked out. And she took the leader, the ITU you know, lead after that event, which had never happened. I mean, it was an amazing ability. And that was over years of time that we developed that kind of a plan and ability to just adapt and adjust and trust. Trust is a big part of it. I think athletes and coaches can both look at this adaptability and and realize the importance, but also work with it, right? If you're an athlete, I understand if you have a routine. I know people, you know, they're they're really rigid in that they have to listen to the exact same song at the exact same time because that's part of the preparation and that gets them to 101%. But maybe what you need to do is practice not doing that because a day is going to come where that is not going to happen because your phone died, because who knows what it is. But and then also on the coach, right? As, as coaches and as people, we're trying to work with athletes and say, hey, this is what's best. This is what I've researched. This is what I think that we ought to do. But maybe language shouldn't be absolute. This is the only thing. This is the absolute best way to do it. Because if that plan doesn't go, the athlete is going to be like, but you said, why? Huh? And that could spin somebody out of control. I think one of the ways you can help with that is, well, it's great to have this very detailed, you know, do this two days before the event, do this 20 hours before the event, do this 18 hours before the event. As you said, it's not always going to play out that way. So understand what you're trying to accomplish and what the goals are. Like, I want to make sure my legs are rested, but not too rested, so I'm rusty. You have your goals for nutrition, have your goals for these different things, so that if you have to adjust, you still know what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, a lot of those things are developing confidence. Yes. So with that, why don't we dive into some of these different aspects? And so let's say three, four days out from the event. So training is over. You're not going to get any stronger. You have what you have. What should you be doing in terms of continuing to, let's say, exercise? So runner, cyclist, triathlete, whatever your sport is, what should you be doing in those four days to have your body ready? Yep. From that point, there's typically going to be a complete relative rest day. And that relative rest does vary. That might be a complete day off for a lot of folks. For a lot of amateur athletes, they're used to having a day off, you know, once a week or every couple of weeks and do nothing like that. That's not uncommon. A lot of professional athletes, they don't have as much of that complete day off in the week, in the, you know, three or four days before the event. So for them going for a 30, a 60-minute easy ride or an easy 20, 30, 40-minute run, even in some cases, is going to be relative rest, that you have that big reduction somewhere earlier in that. That's kind of a, a starting point. So you have that kind of pullback, bit of a reset, rest, and then there's typically some level of building into the event a little bit. That you know, the, the typical term people use, you know, you have openers, pre-race openers, the day before often are where somebody's going to be kind of running through the efforts a little bit, pushing somewhat hard because, well, most races aren't, you know, at an easy intensity. I mean, I've never done Ram and I've never coached somebody who's, you know, been successful at Ram. Have you coached someone who's been unsuccessful? At- <laughs> Actually, I haven't coached anyone okay, unsuccessful okay, at Ram All either. Right. So I'm still out of my element there. Though I did work with some athletes doing some multi-day Paris Press Paris and some of those kind of things. And so we didn't approach the training totally differently that way either. But 
you do have to have a little bit of a series of efforts to run through the physiological gears as well as test your equipment as well. If you're cycling, you know, you want to make sure everything's working perfectly. And I always yes. like to have some test efforts, not just that day before, but a couple days before in your full race setup. Everything as you're going to be racing, it doesn't have to be super long. You don't want to go out and do a, you know, three hour TT bike ride in your skin suit and, you know, with your race wheels and your race tires, but you could warm up, go out and do 20 minutes of, of effort, 30 minutes of maybe an hour on the full getup and make sure everything works as appropriate. If you need to make adjustments, make sure that you have those couple days to do that. We had a rule with like the hour record, both Rowan and Evie of 48 hours, nothing will change. No equipment, yep. no anything, no clothing, no helmet, no this, that. We had a company that delivered, we have a new skin suit. Sorry, it's, it, you know, it arrived 24 hours before the event it's not going to be used. Like we have not tested it. We have not vetted it. We don't want to introduce any kind of question mark in that last bit that we don't have to. It, this reminds me of a really interesting story. Cameron Dye, somebody I know, Neil, that you know extremely well. There was one day, Cameron, I, I forget what race it was. It was a big race. A lot of money was on the line, maybe a series lead, something like that. He performed horribly. And just really, really bad. And and if you know Cameron, he was an exceptionally strong cyclist. I mean, that is how he crushed people in triathlon. He could not ride his bike. As he said, I was working so hard and going nowhere. I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, a day or two later after this race, I'm sitting in my office at BCSM and Cameron walked up to me white as a ghost. He said, can you, can you come down here and look at something with me? And we walked down and his bike was in the studio. He was going to do some training. And he showed me the chainstay of his bike had been worn all the way through the paint. The tire oh, no. had not, or the wheel had not been put in straight. He was literally just grinding the tire against the chainstay oh, no. the whole seen that. time. Yep. Check your equipment. And honestly, the, the thing that sticks in my heart right now is just the look on his face. Yeah. Like he, he couldn't deal with the fact like, oh my God, it was just this simple. Just there was nothing was. wrong with me the whole time. Yeah. Checking that equipment is super important. Now, yep. one thing I want to bring up, not, not to jump topics, Neil, we're talking about checking this equipment. We're talking about getting out on the ride. We're talking about doing these efforts. Are they on the course? Are they not on the course? On the course, if possible, on the course for certain events? How do, how do you make that choice? If possible on the course and again, if even more possible, at about the same time that you'll be competing yes. on that course because conditions vary, whether it's the temperature, whether it's the wind, whether it's those kind of things make a difference. And so in an ideal world, we say you would like to be out there doing some of those efforts at the same time a couple days before, make sure everything is as expected. And if not as expected, you can make those adjustments in those next day or two. And, and sometimes the adjustment is just your head. Yep. I need to plan for this and expect it's going to be really windy in this section. I might be better off on my base bars through here. That is a critical part of my prep that I teach my athletes. If I, if it's an A race and I can get out to the event ahead of time, not the day before the event, but two days before the event, going out and riding the course, as you said, doing some effort, seeing what a particular hill feels like, that both mentally and physically I find is the best way to get myself ready. Yeah. We had a chance to talk with top coach and physiologist, Dr. Inugo Samalan, about what he does with his athletes leading up to a big event. 
He told us his plans in terms of exercise, but then took it further into travel and nutrition. Let's hear what he had to say. Yeah, so that's the whole tapering thing, right? So, I mean, I don't think there's much, in my humble opinion, much of a mystery about the tapering. It's not, it's not a science, right? It's just about uh, making sure that uh, you don't overdo it in terms of training the days before. But at the same time, you activate something, right? So I think that at least uh, four or five days before the race, you, you want to start in, entering in that um, tapering mode to uh, start taking it easy and, and reducing the, the amount of hours, intensity, duration, so that you can start uh, assimilating and super compensating all the, all the previous training that you have done the weeks prior. But, uh, but then just, you still need to stimulate something. So I like, I like to, to have like, a, like the day before a race, for example, to have some uh, openers, you know, so that you can stimulate, uh, whether it's like a, uh, like a two or three minute intervals uh, or maybe like a 10 minute climb that you can do uh, more zone three, zone four. But having some openers so that, um, yeah, the body's a little bit used to that because otherwise, and this is, again, this is trial and error, right? And this is the feedback uh, that I get from many riders, right? That if they don't do anything or any any activation the day before, yeah, the day of the race, like they, 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 they feel there, there's something missing, you know? It's like, I know it sounds old school, but it's like, oh, I couldn't open up today, the engine, you know, or the carburetor is not working well, you know, but so, yeah, I, I, I think it's important to do some openers uh, the day before, at least. Perfect. Outside of training in the last few days, is there anything an athlete can do, uh, say from the massage, uh, nutrition, other factors that aren't the time they're spending on the bike or, or out running? Yeah, I think that it's just, you know, prioritizing recovery and um, yeah, just try to be as, as least stressed as possible. Travel, it's something that uh, many times you're going to have to do if you want to, you know, if you travel for competitions and, and, and travel, it can be, it can alter, right, your routine because uh, we, we think that, oh, I'm taking a day off because I'm traveling. So it's a day off, but actually traveling is not necessarily a day off, right? And uh, you have to get to the airport earlier, the flight might be not, not might not be comfortable. The food, the you know that day might be disrupting your diet. You know, so I think it's really important to pay attention to the days you travel. Make sure you hydrate well, you eat well, you, you try to stay as steady as possible. Try to choose other also flights that are not early in the morning or late in the in the evening. Something is happening in the middle of the day if possible, because again, sometimes you have an early flight uh, and you say, "Oh, great, I'm going to get an early flight to whatever Tucson, Arizona tomorrow." So I can be there by 11 and be at the hotel. Yeah, but that means that you're going to have to get up at 4.30 or 5 to be at the airport at 7 and get to the flight at 9, right? So that, 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 that's going to be a really, could be a wreck, you know, in the days before a competition. And whereas you can maybe sleep in that day if you can and take a, a noon flight, right, um, and get there early evening or so, uh, or, or even go on a bike ride in the morning, you know, and, and then fly it afterwards. But I think the planning of traveling is it's very, very important if you have to travel. And then in terms of nutrition, yeah, it's just like, don't overdo it. Um, we've been thinking also about, oh yeah, now I have to carbo-load and really eat a lot of carbohydrates. Well, if you have already been having a proper nutrition and a proper training and recovery, those days are you're going to be tapering, you're not going to be using much glycogen or carbohydrates. So don't overdo it, right? So uh, you don't need to eat much, you know, like normally in the, in, in the full high intensity week, you know, you might be, it depends on your level, right? But let's say six to 10 grams per kilogram per day. 
you know, that tapering wig, you might need maybe four to six, right? So uh, it's important, don't overdo it in terms of nutrition those days. Hi, I'm John Tarkington, the new Director of Coaching Development and Education for USA Cycling. We invite all Fast Talk listeners and coaches to join our next USA Cycling Coach Summit on May 6th. It's free. You'll get to know me and we'll hear from Coach Mike Ricci, founder of D3 Multisport, whose keynote presentation will reveal some of the efficiencies that can drive profitability for any coaching business. Learn more and register now at fasttalklabs.com. Oftentimes as racers, we're afraid to not perform at our best for every single race. But with race prioritization, maybe there are A-level things that you know you want to perform for, but maybe there are B and C-level things that you're either training through or that you can use for experiment. And when you're mapping out that season, it's really important that we are identifying the ones where we can try something new experimentation is okay because ultimately that could make you better for your A races. That's the repetition. You have to practice something enough. You have to trial it enough time to see this seems to be working well. You can make it. Those tweaks and adjustments, adaptations are 2012 women's team pursuit squad that I did a lot of work with. So I was I'm in a consultant role with them as you know, coach. We had Ben Sharp as the head coach. After the World Championships in 2012, the team actually had a very bad result in Melbourne at the World Championships, like way down. And I was like, well, relative to our goals, like we're off the mark and something has to change. All of our lead up 2010, 2011, 2012 world champs and all the other World Cups were literally a, a one-week camp before those big events. And so we could do similar things just in that last week. But as you know, in training, it's not just that final week that matters. It's all the other, you know, more important, those, you know, two through six weeks leading up to it, what was and wasn't done. And we weren't sure because everyone was coming from a different place. And it was like, okay, well, for us to have success in London at the Olympics in, in August, we're going to have to have our athletes training together for a longer period of time. And so you know, we had, had Jim Miller support that. And so they went to Mallorca to be able to train basically all of June, all of July before we flew to London. And in doing that, I also said, we're going to need to run through the Olympic program because it was different than all the other world championships or world cups because it was qualifying round one, round two, qualifying on Monday, and then round one and two occurring on the same day with just a, a small window of time in between. And so we started doing a little bit in the last World Cups of doing a second ride on a trainer after they had done the finals because all the World Cups, it was you know qualifying on day one and then finals day two, not a, not a third ride. So we instituted a kind of mock third ride just to get them mentally ready for it. It didn't pan out at Worlds, but then we had more of fully tapering and practicing in June. And then in July, and then of course at the Olympics, the entire three rides with a qualifying a round one and a round two. And it was going through that, iterating, making some adjustments in the days based on how they were feeling, because it was also a team environment. It wasn't just one person trying to go well. It was getting, you know, three of those riders or four basically as part of the team to be ready for it. So you brought up the the question of openers. And I'm interested in what your thoughts are and what are good or bad openers. And I'm going to, this was said to me and I found this really interesting. I've been actually experimenting with this where somebody told me you should never do threshold work as your openers because that depletes glycogen. 
and you don't want to be depleting your glycogen the night before a race. So openers should all be short. They should be sprint effort, something that's more anaerobic and is going to spare your glycogen but still give your muscles enough of a hit. What's your thought on that? I mean, my thought on that is actually sprints are actually exclusively glycogen <laughs> utilizing. And so, I mean, if it's anything more than like the first six or 10 seconds. So uh, from that perspective, I don't agree, but I definitely like to see folks do a little bit of below threshold and build up through threshold and have a little bit of a, typically a build in that, like feel like you have that control. You know, they're typically one to two minutes long, somewhere between four and eight of them. The way I often prescribe these is I want you to do enough of these builds so you feel reasonably good relative to the effort. It doesn't mean you feel great doing them, but it's like the effort, my perceived effort relative to the output are kind of in line. And if you get to six, say, is usually I, I usually say like two to six of these. If you've done six and you're not feeling that, you're done. It doesn't matter. It's okay to not feel good. And that's yep. just how it is. And that's part of the mental of expectation, not setting an expectation of you should feel like a hero. Everything should be awesome. Because if you're like, you know, that song, everything is awesome. If you think everything is going to be awesome all the time, you're going to be set up for a lot of disappointment. In most cases, you don't feel awesome all the time. And in racing, some of the best results occur from actually you, you get out there and I feel like garbage at the start and you just, just turn around, save energy yeah. Save energy, and all of a sudden you're making selections, and it's like, whoa! Now I'm competitive because I didn't blow all the energy because I didn't feel so good at the beginning. Yeah, all of my best efforts have come when I felt like garbage, either in the warm up or the days prior to a race. Every single one of them. It's wild how yeah. that can happen, and it's happened at the highest levels. I can tell you. I actually get scared when I start a race and I'm feeling no pain because that tells <laughs> me a whole lot of painkillers are flowing. And the reason they're flowing is because there's a lot of muscle damage there and I'm going to pay for this. And almost invariably, halfway through the race, you just start falling apart. Halfway yeah. through the race, Trevor is punching his quads, <laughs> trying to like, come on, <laughs> do something. So go to work, do your job. So let's jump <laughs> to the warm up. And I know this is a big question because there's a lot of different types of events. Mm -hmm. Warming up for a short track event versus a five-hour road race yep. are entirely different things. But are there any general principles here Yeah. in terms of your warm-up? Fatigue level going into your event is going to impact potentially how long you need to warm up to feel reasonably ready or to be able to perform at your best. So individuals, when they're in like a, a stage race, you know, and you're, if it's day four out of, of a five day stage race, you probably need more of a warm up, not less. Huh. It, it seems like I'm tired. I just can't do much. I'm going to conserve all my energy. And I, I forget the, uh, there, there is a pro cyclist who just doesn't warm up ever in, in grand tours. And that's, that's kind of wild. There aren't many people who do yeah. that. Most riders feel better with a longer warm up when they have more fatigue. And the same thing goes if you were training through an event and you didn't taper down, that you might need just a little more time to feel good. It's kind of like in training. You know, if you go out and you're in your third week of a block and you're doing some efforts and you might not feel great the first 30 minutes, but 90 minutes into it, like things start clicking a little bit. And it's the same kind of idea that you need a little longer warm up when you're carrying more fatigue to be ready than to start. I think that's you know. interesting. You know, I mean, I, I don't have any experience coaching at the Grand Tour level. My assumption as a lay person is that we have a long race, 
We have a neutral rollout. Some people are a little spicy off the start, but not everybody. It seems like eh, warm-up would just sort of be built into the opening case of the stage. Yeah, so I, I have you know specifically a fresh warm-up. When you've rested, you're tapered, you're, you just need 25 minutes and basically a little bit of a tempo effort, a few ramps up to over-threshold, and then unleash the fury. Like everything's ready to go primed. We've done everything right in the leading days, rested, go. I have a grand tour warm-up where that one is almost 45 minutes long on the trainer. And it includes a much longer tempo. It has a build and then a series of, you know, just below, just above, and right at threshold efforts because you need more to get going with that fatigue. And that's been honed over many, many years with multiple athletes and the same thing when they don't do, when they just do that 25 or 30 minute warm up in a grand tour for, for a TT. It's not enough. It's not enough. Like I felt good the second half, but I was just absolutely unable to do anything in the first half and they feel good later. It's like, okay, we need to do more in that. And most cases in, in grand tours too, they also do ride at least some part of the course or some kind of ride in the morning because the, the, the races for them are happening in the afternoon. And so they go out for an hour, hour and a half in the morning, and then they're doing that 45 minute warm up. They're doing the race and then they're doing a proper cool down. Cause usually there's some other hellacious mountain stage coming after that. And that's just how it is. Like rest happens in a grand tour when it's over, not during it, relatively yeah. speaking. Well, the race that really clued me in on this was a tour of the Gila, which is a five-day race where basically the first four days, they're just trying to wear one another down. And then the entire race happens on the last day. Boom. And what you see is the first day, guys might spin around a little bit in the parking lot to get ready. It's like five, 10 minutes of a very slow warm-up. That final day, and the first time I ever saw this, I was like, what are they doing? But Ride fully get it now. <laughs> it's 40 minutes to the start, yep. and the big teams will all ride to the start line. Exactly. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's turning those legs around because they know off the gun, it's, this yeah. is going to be a brutal race. If they race. haven't done enough warm-up, it's going to be very, very uncomfortable for longer. Now, do you guys take that thinking to, say, a, a cyclocross race or a crit, something that's a little bit harder from the start, as opposed to you know bringing this to the, the more normal listener, as opposed to a road race, are there different warm-up strategies for sort of different events and their requirements? Yeah, so conditions, the ambient conditions where the warm-up occurs and how that occurs is also going to have an impact. So if it is really warm conditions, so I've got an athlete at Paranationals right now in Huntsville, Alabama, and it was like, okay, like the weather is a factor. So what's the weather forecast looking like relative to your start time? Because that's going to impact which warm-up we're going to go for. It's actually going to be in the 30s overnight low going into the TT, which is on Saturday. And so we're going to do the longer warm-up because it's not going to be extreme heat. Whereas a lot of times we've been in, in say, Tennessee for nationals and it's like midday. It's like, okay, we're doing literally a 15 or 20 minute warm up. It's going to be, you know, 10 minutes easy, three one minute efforts on, off, on, off. That's it. We don't want to elevate your core temperature. Even in doing so, it's like try to be in the shade, have a ice vest, all of those things to prevent any core temperature rise. Whereas if it's 30 degrees in the morning, it's going to take more time to get core temperature up, muscle temperature up, being ready to go. And, and this is one of those things I think maybe we can bring a little bit of science into. There's mm -hmm. almost this pulling of 
Uh, we want muscle temperature almost as high as we can get it, but we want core temperature as low as we can get it. How, how do you sort of deal with both of those is different. And what I think is interesting is in the science, when you look at like a passive warming up, there are things like heated pants, yeah. right? Can, can really have a lot of these sort of warm up induced improvements in performance, right. you know? And, and so it is interesting on a warm day, wearing uh, some tights or something like that, you're already getting that passive warm-up, that passive muscle temperature increase that gets you a, a good way, you know, toward all the warm-up improvements that you can get. Now, active warm-up certainly has some additional, uh, you know, benefit on top of that, but definitely taking the ambient temperature and conditions in is, is hugely important in making sure this is proper. Exactly. Another part then is is what the demand is going to be for the event right off the go. Yes, so exactly. You know, track cycling, we have standing starts in many of our events, timed events and things like that. And so we had to do some additional things for that kind of torque, for that force production to be prepared for that. So we we did actually use a vibration platform and being able to do some activation exercises mm -hmm. with basically doing partial squats with that just for a little bit of a stimulus. But the other thing that we did that was more important because in most cases, track cyclists are warming up on on pretty much stationary rollers, don't have a huge amount of resistance with those. And so we would actually have the athletes on a concrete place away from the rest of everyone else, usually a hallway underneath the velodrome, have them on their bike, we would hold it, and they would be doing a simulated four to six pedal stroke maximal push as we're holding and resisting them moving forward to get that torque being applied, get that actual neuromuscular force production that just is in no way possible on rollers. And then we had no other way of doing that. You know, we weren't, we weren't going to load up a bunch of barbells and carry them around or fly around the world with all that, with the weight equipment. And so that was way we could mimic that. And the, the best way to do that is actually a little ramp uphill, which a lot of times at a velodrome, you have those, you know, a little bit of a concrete ramp here and there and just a few pedal strokes. So cyclocross probably would uh, be a place where you would find value in doing some of that torque part of the, the last bit of your warm-up, doing a couple torque efforts to mimic that start just to be ready for that activation. Yeah, that same, same thing coming out of a TT start gate, you know. So That was always part of my time trial or crit warm-up was some big gear sprints. Yep. Get that maximal neural uh, activation. And spot on, there's a bunch of research in, in the last five, six years on warm-up showing that really the two gains that you're getting from a warm-up are raising the muscle temperatures you brought up and getting that neural activation. But the interesting thing is most of these studies show the warm-up effect really only benefits you for about two, three minutes. And then your body's going to end up being in the same place. So in a track event that's six minutes or a 10-minute time trial, that's a difference between winning and losing. Or cross race where you have to get your position right off the gun. That's really critical. In a five-hour road race, unless they're killing it off the gun, it's actually not going to make that big a difference. Yep. And the interesting thing I found in these studies is they said one of the biggest mistakes they were seeing in athletes is doing too much of a warm-up and actually going into the race a little fatigued. Yeah, it is possible to definitely overcook it. So in a stage race, looking at the profile... And that's another thing, you know, when you look at week three and it's a 10K uphill off the start. <laughs> off, off the gun. Yep. Oh my gosh. If you have an athlete who, you know, they're a GC rider, they need to warm up because they don't want to get dropped. I mean, yep. I think somebody earlier this year at a big race, like 
popped off early in a stage and lost the race. Uh, race later got dropped in the first climb and That's everything it. just went to, I mean, it blew apart, totally different race winner two days later. That happened. So you have to look ahead at both what the opportunities are if you're somebody who you know isn't where you would think you should be and you want to make an advancement or if you want to maintain where you're at, you got to be ready for that start. Or if you're trying to go in a breakaway on a day like that, man, you literally are going to do a full TT warm up and be ready to rock it right from the go. And I think that if we take this a little bit broader to say running, right? A lot of people are out there, they're running 5Ks, they're running 10Ks. And I think that those athletes are more in this uh, domain of going hard off the start. It, it's not like cycling where you can roll out, you're sitting yeah, in the group, you're drafting. It, exactly. And so warm up might be a little bit more important to get out and, and do those strides and, and everything yep. before your running race. And, you know, it, it's funny, Neil, you're talking about, you know, in the hallway below the velodrome, which, which basically describes my entire, you know, life as as a track and field athlete. And I have fond memories of running at the Armory in New York City, which if anybody knows is on like the second or the third floor of this New York City block building. And everybody warms up in the hallway, like on the first floor. So you're running down this like polished, you know, surface and and then you you pop upstairs and you're out on the track in this big thing. And, and it's such this amazing experience. But the other thing that happens a lot in track and field and that happened to me was at big races like Penn Relays, UPenn, you know, it, it's such a well-run event with so many people. It is so scripted. You warm up. It feels like an hour before you actually get on the track. And then you spend an hour. You're in one corral. You move to the next corral. Yes. You turn to the right. You step over a line. You turn to the left. You step over a line. You follow a guy with a flag. You stand on the side of the field. It's amazing how scripted it is. But as an athlete... I would never expect to have good performances there because it was I, I was done. I was hungry by the time I was getting out there running. Yep. One last thing I'll throw in about the warm-up. Neil, I might get a good laugh out of you from this. I think one of the most important parts of your warm-up is scope in the parking lot, <laughs> which is you bike around. So I'm talking mostly cycling here. You see what all the big teams are doing. And if they are sitting in lounge chairs, then you should be chatting away. It's like, <laughs> not going to worry about this. If all the domestiques for the big teams are on trainers with a look of death on their, yeah, their get faces, ready to go. You know it's going to be hard off the gun, and you better be ready. Yep, definitely so, knowing what what's going on, and, and people will give clues like that. Yep, I can Talk. tell you from triathlon. My thing about a running warm up there was literally going to the farthest away porta potty because there's going to be no line. That was like yep. a tactical advantage. I didn't have to wait. I didn't have to worry about anyone knowing where there's one that's literally a half mile over there at the Boulder Reservoir over by, you know, off the side. You're not going to have to stand in the 15 minute line and be waiting way better. Yeah. It's tactics, baby. Speaking about that thing, you know, that can undo your race, right? Knowing where the prime porta potty is can, can really be a, a big advantage. Absolutely. You got a plan. You got a plan for these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to share some stories, but yeah, that's there are plenty. That's a whole share. other episode. <laughs> that is a different episode that we would never publish. <laughs> but but maybe a good transition to the nutrition that you can yes. do before the race. Bingo. Good transition, Rob. I, I like know, it. Trevor is so happy with me right now. Let Let's dive into nutrition. So four days out, what does nutrition look like? Yeah, in most cases at that four days out, people are reducing their overall training load. And so actual total intake may be coming down a little bit. You're not going into starvation mode. You're not doing anything ridiculous or silly in that way. But it, there's a potentially a little bit of an absolute reduction in total calories. 
though at that point, I am still a proponent of having a slightly higher than typical carbohydrate intake. There was the old school stuff, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I did this before my first Ironman of a glycogen depleting workout a week out, and right. then you would just super compensate. Yep. I think all the studies that we've seen since those early days in the you know eighties and nineties is that literally if you just bump up your intake for three to five days before an event, you know, having twenty or thirty percent more carbohydrate than normal, you're going to get fully replete stores unless you're coming in at some extremely low level to begin with or your daily intake is just too low anyhow. Really important thing to understand with that though is if you are trying to build your glycogen stores, glycogen is basically a mole of glucose bound to four moles of water. In other words, if you are building your glycogen stores, you're going to put on a lot of weight. So people will do this step on the scale every day and go, oh my God, I just put on three, four pounds. I'm going to lose the race. It's water. Yep. Rowan going into the hour, it was like, oh my gosh, he's gained you know two kilos since he got here. I'm like, perfect. Everything's on target. Because the typical European pro, like going into a race, you don't want to gain weight. I was like, hey, yes, there's no hills on the track. Well, unless you go up the banking, which in the hour record, he really didn't. He stayed pretty much on the black line. So literally two kilos is going to cost less than like a watt on the flat. Yep. But having that glycogen is going to be absolutely necessary when pushing over 400 watts for an hour because glycogen is going to limit performance more Huge than that, limiter. you know, yeah. bit of water weight predominantly. Again, that, you know, those glycogen stores being topped off, great, carrying water, which, oh, great. And guess what? In the hour, you also don't get to uh, drink anything. So having some additional fluid on board with that glycogen, man, that's like the perfect situation. I was happy. The others were kind of funny, you know, funny about it. So if you are an athlete and you weigh yourself frequently and if you see yourself gaining one, you know, a couple pounds, two, three, four pounds before an event, you're doing it right It probably in terms of your fueling. Yep. I think that bringing up the hour record is really interesting because I spent a lot of time looking through some research prior to this on the whole glycogen loading thing. And what I saw, there wasn't necessarily a consensus as to whether or not carbohydrate loading was was going to be effective for you or not. And great study from uh, Dr. Burke and Dr. Holly, Dr. Noakes, all of them who are like, carbohydrate loading failed to improve 100 kilometer cycling performance, right? And, and some of the takeaways from this is if you're going to be able to feed and eat during an event, then having proper glycogen prior to the event is, is kind of all that you need. But I think that there are special cases like the hour record, as you said, you can't eat, you can't drink, even in mountain biking, maybe where you're able to carry a water bottle, how much are you actually getting in? So mountain biking, cyclocross, hour record, TT, all of those things, you don't want to break the arrow position. Maybe that is an area where making sure that your carbohydrate is is as good as it can be. Maybe you don't need to do anything crazy, but those are events that are very high power output. For a, a 45 minutes to an hour, these are the things that can deplete your glycogen. Being topped off is probably a good thing, but at the same time, if you're able to ride longer a couple hours, eat a whole bunch, maybe being fully topped off isn't necessary or it doesn't have a huge effect on performance. Yeah. Trevor, your, your thoughts yeah. on that? You're the long race guy, I feel well, like. Well, so there are actually studies showing that if you supercompensate your glycogen, so build the levels higher than normal, When you are in a race situation, your body's actually going to rely on glucose more for fuel. It oxidizes it. And over a long event, you can actually, even though you go in with more glycogen, 
you can actually deplete it more quickly. So I agree, if you're doing those long events, I actually don't think trying to maximize, like you want to make sure you're at 100% with your glycogen, but trying to get to that 130% might not be the best strategy. But I do also agree that that shorter event, that one hour event, where you are going to be going to intensity where you're naturally going to be relying mostly on glucose for fuel, absolutely, you want to have as much as possible. I'd say you're right on target. One thing to keep in mind on a multi-day, if you actually completely deplete your stores on any day, if you have the dreaded, you know, the British the don't like that word, but if you uh, get Wait, glycogen what, what depleted. What word don't the British uh, like? Bonk. Really? Ah, That's a bad issue with bonk. That, mean, that means something else. I've never been to my wow. apologies to all our British wow. listeners. Sorry. We've been using yeah, that they, word they, a they lot. They sniker every time they hear an American use that. So we'll but, just say, but you, they're okay with the word fanny. The or no, fanny is bad. Fanny is bad <laughs> there too. You go. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's, I'm, not, I'm it's, on. A, it's a bum bag okay. if you're Aussie. And there's whatnot, nothing yeah. good about a fanny bag. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. There is nothing good about you it. You offended every yeah. gravel yeah. cyclist and mountain biker yeah. in the it's world. It's a bum bag. It's a bum bag. So in in Aussie speak, at least. But if you do Hold on, wait. It's a bum glycogen. bag? Yeah. I can't get over this. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you deplete your glycogen, it cannot be fully yes. replenished in 24 hours. If you absolutely yeah. zero out, you are in trouble for days. Try as you may. And so it's so important. And that's the thing, you know, in a grand tour, if you if somebody bottoms out, usually they're in doo-doo for not just that day, but in the coming days, there's going to be a reckoning because you just can't get it all back in no matter what you do. It takes several days of, of a little bit of overfeeding to get back to fully replete. Which is why when you're, especially when you're in that stage race, fueling during the yeah. event yeah. And is so often so critical. you'll see guys taking bottles in the last you know 15 minutes and it's not for that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, even right. though, yeah, there's the carbohydrate mouth rinse, all that kind of stuff. It's literally, they're starting their recovery, making sure that they're not bottomed out making sure they don't get down to that bankrupt and zeroed out. I think for a long time, people didn't realize how much cyclists were actually eating, you know, in in these races. I think maybe recently it's become a little bit more to light, but, you know, oftentimes I view, I love doing longer races. I'm not really cut out for it, but for me, it's oftentimes an eating competition more than a riding competition, tell you the truth. So, yeah. yeah. I remember working with an Ironman athlete who was a bigger bigger guy, you know, in the, whatever, close to 180 pounds, 170 some. And, and we did testing in the lab where, where Rob and I worked. And I was like, well, you need, you should be taking in about 120 to 150 grams of carbohydrate an hour. He's like, are you kidding me? Which is a huge number. And it's like, well, nobody can do that. And it's like, well, the research I'm pretty sure is a little bit behind. Like we've seen people who've been doing this and that guy won a big race. He was top 10 at Ironman Hawaii. It's like, intake relative to the expenditure with that capacity. It's just, you have to train your stomach. And yeah. again, you can't eat certain types of carbohydrate to get it all. It has to be from a mix. So mixed carbohydrate source is, is part of that, but it worked. And again, big guy, you know, you can hold 350 watts for, you know, many hours. And so you just have to scale things. Often digestive issues drive an athlete's nutrition strategy more than performance in the 24 hours leading up to an event. Let's hear from digestion expert Patrick Wilson on things we can do to make sure our guts function at their best in the event. Are there things that you can do in those, those days leading up to make sure that your, your gut is going to work with you and not against you as you're getting ready for a race? 
Yeah, I mean, you could uh, take a look at a couple of those dietary approaches. I mean, a few days beforehand, you got to remember stuff is, is moving through your gut. It takes anywhere from a day for some people, upwards of five days for others. I mean, the whole transit of the gut in terms of once you ingest it and the residue ends up at the other end, that's kind of the time frame you're looking at. So that's generally the window before an event where you can have some impact uh, on some of those things nutritionally. So that could include you know, reducing fiber intake if you're worried about kind of uh, having to use you know, the restroom too many times. Fiber intake is directly correlated with stool amount and weight on a given, on a given day. So I mean, that's obviously one thing you can take a look at is tapering your fiber intake if you're a little bit worried about that. I even saw recently on Twitter a scientist publishing something about uh, tapering fiber intake and its impact on cycling weight. And uh, the study's not out yet, but they were kind of indicating that there were some interesting findings there. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. The FODMAP thing would be another one, potentially targeting FODMAPs for a day or two beforehand if you are especially experiencing like bloating and, and cramping, loose stools, that sort of thing. That could be a, a potential strategy there. Avoiding way too much of NSAIDs. I mean, obviously, endurance athletes have a lot of lingering injuries in some cases or just nagging pains. And uh, if they're anticipating they're going to have an exacerbation of those injuries during their event, they might try and proactively take a lot of NSAIDs. And that is certainly a recipe for gut problems if you take it in a high enough dose. So I think that would be something to be aware of and careful about. And if you can find ways to get through the race without using them, that would be you know, generally my recommendation. And the other thing is, if you're the anxious type of person that gets really worked up before races, try and figure out a way to center yourself a little bit better and uh, maybe implement some strategies to dampen that stress response, whether it be slow, deep breathing, you know, listening to relaxing music, practicing some mindfulness strategies, I think the combination of those things could be you know, a strategy to at least reduce the severity of the, the symptoms that someone might experience or the likelihood. Depends on, again, what their underlying causes are for their problems. But those are at least you know, three or four things that I think practically athletes could take away and, and maybe utilize in that pre-event period. We're about halfway through this episode with Neil Henderson on race week preparation. When it's all over, don't stop learning. Head over to fasttalklabs.com where we have articles and more fast talk episodes on pre-race warmups, what to pack for mountain bike races, how to prepare for events at altitude and more. See more on race preparation at fasttalklabs.com. So let's dive a little more specifically into nutrition strategies for the day before and the morning of, because this is one of the places where you can see a lot of athletes absolutely destroy the race. Yep. So again, you're not going to try to institute any new foods that you haven't done. So this is a pattern that you should have been practiced multiple times and know what is available. And if it's not available where you're at, you had to bring it. So again, people traveling international at times like, Oh my gosh, they don't have X, Y, or Z available. I did a race in in the Caribbean once, and uh, our pre-race meal was basically KFC. 
Not yep. recommended. I did not perform very <laughs> well off of fried, fried chicken, chicken and, and corn. Like I did not have adequate carbohydrates. That was a hard lesson to learn. So if rice is the only thing you eat, great. If you're racing in Asia, going to be super easy. If you're in Norway, might not be as easy. Make sure that you either know what you are used to is available or you bring your own. I would always say bring some of your own anyhow, because even if it's supposedly normally available, if whatever kitchen in your hotel doesn't open up until 6 a.m. and you got to leave at five, you have to be prepared. So low residue is something that people have been doing a little bit more of, and that's uh, having less fiber. Yep. Going to more simpler carbohydrate to reduce some of the, the GI side of things. So white rice better than brown rice in that. White bread better than brown bread or wheat bread, some of those type in terms of low residue idea. Just keep in mind, low residue diet can help your your performance, prevent GI issues during the race. But it's not your It's not a healthy out. diet. Correct. Yeah. This yeah. is not something that you should be doing 365 days a year. This should be for your big events for just a couple days, and that's for your performance, and then you go back to a better, healthier diet for sure. And that should be eating in general, right? Like eating you're doing should be up for a purpose. You're making choices with the food that you're eating. And sometimes that choice is just, I need low GI distress so I can perform tomorrow. And then your choice later is healthy lifestyle, reduction of disease risk, so on and so forth. So what about the morning of? Yep. Morning of timing is important relative to the intensity. And there are some folks out there with cast iron stomachs that an hour and a half beforehand can eat some solid food and be good to go. I would not recommend that. I typically say the higher the intensity, the longer out you want to go from, from some sort of meal with solid. So at least two, typically three hours is a safer place. And those solids are typically, again, going to be fairly simple, a plain, you know, a bagel with some sort of jam or fruit, a banana and a, and a plain bagel, pretty easy on the stomach for most folks, but practice this. So again, oatmeal for a lot of folks is, is one of those things, but you can't just do it, you know, two hours before and, and have no problem in most cases. And that's where practicing that is really important, right? We know a lot of things you shouldn't leave to a race day decision, but you should know ahead of time, based on workouts, based on your sequencing, based on other races, what what's going to yeah. work for you. And my favorite story here, and, and I might have shared this before, is um, I had an athlete, I coached a UCI-level junior cyclocross team, and uh, we were flying to a race. This athlete knew exactly what worked for him as a pre-race meal, and so he took it with him in his carry-on. And so when we went through security... Even though every, it was, it was hilarious. They couldn't not let it through because it was all canned, like prepackaged things or whatever. But we're standing there and we're watching the conveyor belt of the x-ray machine. Here comes a can of corn. And then like two feet later, a bag of rice. And it, and it took like minutes yep. for everything to come through. I was dying laughing. My worst ever in that scenario was uh, I went down to the Caribbean to do a race and I was team manager for our team. And we are in a place where there's no bike shops. You got to bring whatever you need. And I had to figure out the whole weight thing. So I knew the heaviest stuff I was going to put in my shoulder bag. And I was bringing down the Gatorade for the team. So I didn't even think about this, but I bought like 20 of those little tubs of Gatorade. I'm like, well, I can't fit all these tubs into a shoulder bag. So I got big plastic bags, <laughs> dumped all this Gatorade into these plastic <laughs> bags 
ballast. I, I, I get down there and I, they, I go through the security and they see giant bags of white powder. <laughs> Wrapped in duct tape for some reason. <laughs> and, uh. and then pull it out and they're like, what is this? And I'm like, honestly, it's Gatorade. <laughs> yeah. I swear to you. It's drink mix, man. Yeah, you're like, well, that's lemon lime and that's fruit punch. <laughs> exactly. uh, different flavors. Some. Oh, important stuff. Yeah. I think one of the easiest pre-race or easiest on the stomach for a lot of folks, rice, scrambled egg, little olive oil, little salt. You know, you can put a little bit of Parmesan cheese or something like that if you want a little bit of flavor, but that's pretty much a, a super simple go-to for that works well. I can't tell you how many athletes over time that I know that they go to a rice-based pre-race yep. meal as their simplest, easy, can get it, can do it almost anywhere without too much difficulty. But I am going to point out, these things are trainable. So if you are somebody who has that issue of if you eat within three hours of the race, it affects your race. Don't train it for during your races, but Saturday morning group ride before a workout. Start practicing eating really close, and it's going to be a little uncomfortable at first, but you can train it. You can make it better. Yeah. The other side of this too is that your body can change. I know for a long time I was an iron stomach type of person and a couple of years ago that changed for me and I was having a lot of GI distress, stomach pain in cyclocross races and it would really limit me from being able to go the workload that I otherwise could have. So if you had something that worked for you in the past and it doesn't work for you anymore, it's time to re-experiment, it's time to rechange. Adapt and adjust and one of the big things I would say in all of this is take notes. Now, yep. I'm an analog guy. I, I still write stuff down, but on a training log, if you have you know whatever training software you like to use, when you have your files of workouts that you've done, if you can also add notes in there, that is some of the best place, especially if you can search by word then. You could go back and see what you've done previously. So you know, way, way, way back before we had any of those kind of, you know, software training things that, that you could save all that stuff and reference it anywhere in the world, which is awesome. Now I can go look back at stuff 20 years old and see what I did because I kept fastidious notes in the electronic format as well. But when I turned pro in, in 2001, I went through my written training logs of things that I did training wise, as well as looked at, you know, good days and what did I eat? I often had notes when I was very, very early on of what I ate, what I ate when I ate that. So I knew like, okay, repeat this, do not repeat that. Like this definitely worked, this definitely didn't. And over time, you, you'll you have a better understanding of your, you know, of your own N equals one. Any other thoughts on nutrition strategies? Always make sure your water source is good. So, so often, you know, Giardia will oh, undo there, your race. There, there are so many things in, We're in, back in, to the, in the water quality um, side that may affect you on the day itself. I, I, I did a race once where I filled up from a hose that didn't end well. I don't know how long that water had been sitting there in and out of sun baking cycles with whatever kind of plastics and rubbers and everything leaching into it, but it ended my day as a performance. I, I was able to finish that race, but oof, yeah. water quality, make sure you're saying that. And again, when you travel certain places, Bottled water only, never never eat an ice cube. All those kind of things are real. Being careful about the water you drink is one thing you can do, but as Coach Renee Eastman discussed with us, the best thing you can do in general is to focus on the things that you can control. Focus on the things that you can control. You know, going to bed early, taking care of your hydration, taking care of your nutrition. The nutrition, the specifics of it, 
are really, you know, a little bit dependent on what it is. Is it, you know, Leadville mountain bike race is going to be nine hours long or is it a criterium where, you know, glycogen depletion is not an issue? I would say don't introduce new things into those last couple days of the nutrition plan of start taking supplements or cut out all your coffee just in the fourth last couple days. Plan ahead. That's one thing to do in those couple days before your race, especially if you're having to travel to your race. Where are you going to eat dinner? When are you going to eat dinner? How are you going to get breakfast before the race? What time are you going to eat breakfast before the race? And in, in those kinds of things to maybe pack your own food so it's all taken care of or, you know, know where you can, you know, get your favorite thing to eat that night before. It'd probably be good to come up with a checklist. Uh, I think I've been doing this so long, I've got my own mental checklist. But the things that I personally do race week, and I encourage my athletes to do race week, are the same things that I encourage them to do week in and week out during their training. That, you know, on race day, it shouldn't be a whole lot different than how you would treat yourself in the day of or the days leading into a really hard training session. You should have already, by the time you get to race day, have had plenty of really hard training sessions that mimic the demands of your race. And, you know, maybe if it's Leadville, you didn't do a whole 100-mile mountain bike ride, but similarly, really exhaustive, long rides. So it's just maintaining those good habits. So that idea of a specific thing that you do on race week versus training week, I don't think it should really be a whole lot different, to be honest. Love hearing you say that. That's that's a question I give athletes all the time where they figure out a routine. They, you know, they, they have their Saturday morning group ride that they're doing great at, and then they get to a race and go, oh, no, I got to change everything that I do. Is go, why would you take something that you know works for you, throw that out the window and do something you'd never do on an important day? Right. And then you get to practice on those group ride days of, you know, what works best for you, pancake breakfast or oatmeal, or is it three hours before your ride or two hours or, or whatnot? So at the time we have left, there's two areas that we still need to address. One is sleep and rest, and the other one is travel, if travel is part of getting to your event. So what are your thoughts on sleep and getting rest? Yeah, so sleep is a secret weapon for athletes. Have it, and if you sleep well, you are much, much better odds of being able to perform to your best than if you're not sleeping well. So being able to sleep well is kind of a weapon. There's also some evidence that shows that actually if you have increased sleep in the days leading into a performance relative to normal, you actually perform even better than if you maintained your normal sleep cycle. And the exact opposite of that, if you reduce sleep over several days leading into it, you're going to have even more further reduced performance. It's interesting because that's... uh... It's a little contrary, Neil, to uh, what I've experienced, tell you the truth. I do think with the research I looked at, essentially, and I think that anecdotally, if you talk to people, insomnia, difficulty sleeping before a race, it, the struggle's real. I think that mm-hmm. happens to a lot of people. 
that maybe that's something that you can't necessarily control because of anxiety and nerves. You, you have yeah. to control those things and then maybe that helps your insomnia. The other thing that I found really interesting though in a review study was that sleep hygiene tended to get worse. The anxiety that people had caused them to make poor decisions. They spent a lot of time on their electronics before bed to kind of fill that time, which makes it harder to sleep. Yeah. Or they're doing other things, traveling in a hotel. So I think that sometimes there isn't a choice, but sometimes there is. And the factors that you can control are really important for you to create a good environment for sleep, to make those strong choices, to maximize whatever potential you're going to have. Yep. But look, this is an important one, and uh, you know, I'm, I was somebody early in my cycling career. The, the night before key events, I wouldn't be able to sleep at all. I can't tell you how many races that were important to me I did on zero sleep the night before because of, of stress and anxiety, and I did get over that, but it was an issue. And it was helpful for me to see research showing that one bad night of sleep has pretty minimal impact on your performance. I think what has a bigger impact on performance is going to the race. It's an important race and you just had a sleepless night and you're nervous about what that does to you. So what I have learned or what I learned was when I have those nights, don't lie in bed stressing about, oh no, my race is now ruined. Get out of bed, go read a book and just say, I'm not going to get a night of sleep, but it's actually not going to affect my performance that much. Read a book, watch a movie and just remind yourself this isn't as devastating as I think it's going to be. And as a coach, I think that you can downplay you know, the effect that it might have on the athlete. My one athlete that I coach always, you know, maybe has some trouble sleeping. And I always, no matter what, I'm insistent that I had my best races after my worst night of sleep. Whether or not it's true doesn't matter. But as you're saying, it's the psychology side of this that can have a hugely detrimental effect. So really being able to support your athlete in their confidence is, is going to have a big improvement. Definitely. And that's the biggest thing, that confidence comes back to that. And so not panicking. As an athlete, if you're disrupted, if it's less than ideal, okay, manage the stress. And that's that, like reading a book at that point, if you're awake, okay, that's going to help kind of reset you and not just send you in that cycle of continuing to escalate and elevate that that stress response, that anxiety. Exactly. Managing that in the coach, the same thing, you know, okay, you didn't sleep as well. You know, there is research that will say like the night before is not that important, right? From, from some of yeah. the different army studies and things like that. That's, I've, I don't know how many times I've had to say that, like night before really doesn't matter at all. But the thing that will kill you is lying in bed for eight hours stressing. Correct. That will impact you. The anxiety associated with that, because that's, yeah, all the, the cortisol disturbance, everything there. So let's move over to travel, which I know you have dealt with a lot yourself and with your athletes. So you can talk about the perfect four days preps for an event, but often you're on a plane or, you know, from my experience, you're driving for 22 hours. Yep. In a van with stinky other people. Yep. Yeah. I could deal with all of it except for being in a van with eight 22 year olds. Anymore. You gave that up. Yeah. No, I can't. I just can't (laughs) do that anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah. So... Having, again, a plan with your travel, looking ahead and and what are your connections. And in a lot of cases, people book poor travel because it's cheaper. Yeah, to okay, save $30. Is that $100 difference worth 
three layovers and a potential for your equipment to get wrecked and more time yep. to lose a flight and to get there later or miss your race, all those things. Always look a little bit from the practical point of view. A nonstop flight is better than having a stop, especially in the, the transcontinental ones, you know, for myself, going back and forth to Europe for a period of time, I was doing that, you know, I don't know how many times a year, too many. And it was like, I need to do the Denver to Frankfurt or Denver to London. I have to do that as my first leg. That way I can get some sleep. I usually do an afternoon flight. So it is a potential for me to be able to get sleep, land there in the morning. I'm closer to the cycle because there's daylight when I land. I may travel a little bit more, maybe a little more difficult to stay awake, but managing some of the things with jet lag is about the schedule and scheduling, a, you know, putting yourself on flights that are going to fit that schedule pretty well. Other couple key things to keep in mind, hydration when you're on a plane, it's a fairly dry environment. Those of us who live in Boulder, we're kind of used to dry. But if you are, you know, from a humid area, you get on a plane, it's very dry air and is actually only pressurized to if you're on a new uh, 787, I think they get it down to about 4,000 feet of elevation. Effective feel. If you're on some of the older planes, it's more like six, 7,000 feet of elevation of impact while you're in that plane. So if you're on a long flight from here to Australia, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours, that's a stressor if you're not already coming from altitude and if you're not hydrating. So you have to stay hydrated. So avoid alcohol. I'm not a big fan of any of the sleep aids and the sleep drugs and things like that. I'm in, in any case, and especially with travel, especially if it's not something you do consistently, you're just going to be th throwing an element in there that is probably going to cause you some problems. Some of that being your, your GI with some of those. So plan, take a look, sleep when you can on that flight as best you can. So bring whatever you need, a pillow, an inflatable thing, an eye mask, noise canceling headphones and or, or, or ear you know pods, whatever you do in that way, all of those things will help you. Other thing I'm going to add is whether it's a flight or you're in the van doing the 20-hour drive, good food is not going to generally be available to you. And this was particularly an issue on the van where we would stop at gas stations and gas station food is horrible. Pack some food. Yep. Bring what you want there. Compression gear, you know, compression socks definitely mm -hmm. good on those long flights or long drives especially. Those things would definitely help, you know. I've never been able to bring on like a Normatex or anything like that on a plane, but in a car. So oh, no, it sounds like you that on a plane. The, uh, <laughs> the new thing. So this year, I did, well, this last year, I did the Leadboat. So Leadville on Saturday, and then had to go from Leadville to Ooh. Steamboat and do Steamboat Gravel, 144 miles on Sunday. My wife was an angel. She drove from Leadville to Steamboat. I was able to sit in the back seat with the Normatex boots wow. on for like, an hour. I love um, it. And using the, the you know, yep. Theragun to be able to just massage and spend some of that time in the car, actually helping to accelerate that recovery process. That's not your standard, but if you can plan ahead, you know, and be ready to be able to do some of those things, it'll just make it a little bit better. And I would say once you're off the plane or you've arrived, doing those Normatex is great. I'm actually interested in your opinion on this. I'm a big fan of get on the bike. And do a little neural work, Definitely. do some high cadence sprints, get that blood flowing in the legs again. Yeah. On that day of landing, so normally we, I, again, I try to do the overnight flight. You land sometime in the day. It's usually, you know, sometimes afternoon till you're at where you're going. Put your bike together because you need to know if there's a problem. If you Don't wait, wait. till the next day, you've lost again so many mm -hmm. hours of time of being able to troubleshoot, come up with an alternative. So 
ASAP is unpack your bike. Also reporting if there are any damages that you can report that if you wait too long, you actually miss out on some of that window. So get that bike together, get out and ride, extend that first day and try to stay awake. Don't try to go to bed at two in the afternoon and try to sleep to the next day. That's trouble. You're going to never get your clock reset if you really don't try to work on it. You have to have the one miserable day. And then take that one longer day and then get into the rhythm and wake up in the morning, get into the sunshine, actual sunshine. And I know when you travel over to Europe in the winter, it's a little bit harder because there's a little bit less sun. We used to do, uh, Taylor used to travel with, you know, one of the happy lights, basically Mm. get the, get that extra UV exposure early to try to get that body clock reset. He never did really well with, with international travel. He's big time zone delays, you know, took him a week at least going from here to Europe to feel reasonably good. Some folks can do it in three or four days, but by and large, a day per hour on a, Time zone change is a good rule of thumb. What about on the domestic side of things? You're you're traveling to another state. Maybe you're traveling across the country. How early are you planning on going out to maximize your performance? You can go too early. Yeah. Yep. So conditions, so the ambient conditions, if you're traveling to the southeast and it's going to be swampy and you're used to, you know, arid Colorado or Utah, that's a big shift and you need to have some heat acclimatization in terms of that heat and humidity specifically. The humidity is a big thing. And so even before you leave, potentially doing some overdressing so you actually have a little bit of a humid layer on you while you're doing some of your training in the last week or so would be good because some of the heat adaptations, you know, seven to 10 days of exposure will give you, you know, your primary adaptations that are possible. But that humidity aspect is quite different. Somebody who's coming up to altitude from sea level, that's also now there's ideal situation, seven to 10 days, but realistically then maybe better just one or two days. In that three or four days, in most cases, your body is trying to adapt to that and you're at the most point of disruption. You are at your week is about four or five days yeah. after arriving at altitude. So yep. people coming up to Boulder Iron man it's either come a, like a week days. or more or, <laughs> or come immediately more. before yeah right yeah and you always have those you have to be here to pick up your packet by this time it's like okay so with that in mind what's the minimum or what do i need to be for the longer term that seven to ten day so yep. either basically less than three or greater than seven mm-hmm. is kind of the best in those dramatic changes in environment of elevation heat and humidity compared yeah. to what you'd be used to now going to somewhere colder yeah nah you're not going to have an you don't really have cold adaptations other than your potential tolerance or how long it takes you to grow a beard if you're a guy uh, to help keep your face from freezing off that's that's one of my things that i do because i'm bald on top here i got no hair on the top <laughs> of my head so getting some facial hair helps in the winter it's gonna say my thing in the winter and like i let my hair grow long i get a big bushy beard like i'm a i'm a total bushman and that helps me a lot exactly it's so, an attitude yep but you know most of our listeners just like us have have full-time jobs they might have a, a race on a saturday and they're usually traveling on the friday and so with that in mind it's just have had your relative rest sometimes folks you know they do openers on the on the trainer in the morning before they leave and travel next morning you're right at it let's go Something, if it's a long drive, something I will recommend to my athletes is either time it so that you can get there to do that spin, or if you can't, literally stop partway on Midway. the drive, yep. get on the bike, do I've a spin. I've been there before, yep. Yep, do that 30-minute. I've, I've pulled a trainer out in a parking lot randomly somewhere in the middle of nowhere yep. and done 20 minutes with a couple little builds and throw it back in and continue on. 
I did this in Wyoming before I understood Wyoming wins. <laughs> My <laughs> did friend you face and I the were, were, <laughs> we were driving up the Cascades and got out, got on the bikes. We're like, wow, we're going so fast. So we had planned like an hour spin. Yeah. Uh, Whoops. We went 20, 25 minutes one way. Hour. And then it took us like an hour 15 to get back. Slogging too. Going eight miles an hour into the most unbelievable headwinds we had ever experienced in our lives. Yeah. Those can be absolutely amazing. So best on those days when you notice there is wind, head into the wind to start. Yeah. Yes. Truth. Better to manage it that way. Yes. We actually off mic for a minute because Rob was complaining that he's a little glycogen depleted, so he didn't do his prep work for this event. And I kid you not, Neil pulled a bag, a smaller bag out of the bag that he came with that had race food, yep. various painkillers in case no, he's there. No painkillers. No, no. So what was it? Benadryl in Benadryl? case you have an allergic uh, uh, okay, reaction, yes. you're going to die. We have Sudafed in case you have a sinus issue when you're on a plane. Those kind of headaches are the worst. It's another Sudafed. They are bad. And, uh, well, we got emergency or immune, you know. Yeah, got some yep. food. Scratch we bar. Got a bar. We got a bag of almonds. We've got earplugs in case you forget your headphones or you have a snoring roommate. When you room with people you don't know, you're often going to need those. We got some hand sanitizer. We got a modium if you have a bad GI issue. That's the other thing there. We have a packet of oatmeal. We have some lip balm, again, very dry. Have a, a toothbrush and toothpaste in there. Have some tissues. And most importantly, a small packet of Cholula. Which can do anything for you. It, it can probably sanitize your water it'll if you're put, drinking out of so a hose. It'll, it'll put you in a good headspace, too. If you've had bland food and you need to spice it up, you go to that Cholula, it's like, bam, I'm ready for anything. All I can say is we have picked the perfect person for this episode <laughs> because there, right there is his like prep for anything. Be bad. ready. Yeah. And Failure to plan is a plan to him. fail. And this, that's, this backpack goes with me everywhere. When people pick it up, they're like, what do you have in there? I'm like, it's everything. what I don't have in there and it's nothing. I don't not have anything. I have everything I need to exist for at least a week in a foreign land. And, and Money, it, coins, bills, all kinds of currency. I'm ready. Oh, I was going to say, if we're ready to jump, are we ready to jump we're to takeaways? We're ready to jump into our takeaways. And I think the takeaway is do as Neil does. Plan, plan. Plan, plan. The, practice. The guy planned so much, he took the travel bag to the preparation podcast recording because that's how much he plans. You never know. So, Neil, with that, do you have any more one-minute takeaways, or have you demonstrated? Like, this is where you should just your takeaway should just be drop the mic I and mean, walk I out think, the room. Drop think, the Cholula. I think that says it all right there. Um, <laughs> yeah, plan it out and be adaptable. There we go. Rob, can we even touch this? No, I got. I got. You I got give nothing it a try? more. I, I have nothing more. It's the same for me. Plan ahead. Be adaptable. Okay. I am scared to touch any of this. I am just going to add the learn yourself, learn what works for you. You have to experiment, as you said, use this at smaller events, play with those four days, and then, yeah, come prepared. And I'm still shocked at what I'm looking at on the table here. <laughs> this is the. But not appalled, just shocked. 
I think we have to take a picture of this, and we will put this on the website. Did you bring your phone down? I have my I have my phone. We'll do this as the um, our, as our, the... our takeaway is going to be a visual. We'll we'll leave it at that. This is Neil has prepared for any possible situation in his race travel. This is amazing. You should be see what else is in the rest of my backpack. <laughs> that was another episode of Fast Talk. <laughs> That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Neil Henderson, Tom Scoinch, Dr. Inigo San Milan, Dr. Patrick Wilson, Renee Eastman, Rebecca Gross, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>